once again, everybody, good evening and welcome to the first Theology on Tap of our summer series. Um, like all good things, uh, we'll begin with prayer. So uh, if you signed in, uh, you should have received an email uh, with uh, the prayer that we'll be using for the entirety of the summer series. So I see some people searching through their phones. I'll give you a second. It's a, it's a version of the serenity prayer, which I think we're all familiar with and, and like, right? All right. Uh, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as the pathway to peace. Amen. So, uh, like I mentioned before, uh, the theme for the Summer Theology on Tap series is sanctifying everyday life. And when uh, the planning team first came together and were brainstorming ideas, uh, one of the things I, I think still on everybody's mind is uh, the way the, the world has changed uh, with uh, COVID. And we decided we don't want to talk about COVID. But then, I, but then again, I just mentioned it, so... But, but anyway, uh, but I think many of us uh, in this time have started thinking about, uh, you know, how we're, how we're spending our time, how we're, you know, investing in, in people and things and how we prioritize what's important to us. And so a, a theme from all of that brainstorming early on, you know, how do we incorporate God in our everyday life? How do we sanctify everyday life? And uh, so we thought as a great way to kind of set up the theme and what we should be thinking about uh, throughout this summer series, uh, we came to uh, one of the great Ignatian virtues, uh, finding God in all things. And uh, so I'm, I'm very happy to introduce Father Sam Conadera of the Society of Jesus to uh, expound on that and, and offer some of his thoughts for us to reflect on. Uh, Father Sam is a Jesuit priest from Portland, Oregon. He earned a bachelor's degree in history and Spanish from St. Louis University in 2002. In 2006, Father Sam entered the Society of Jesus and as a novice taught at Santa Clara University in California. He later earned a master's degree in philosophical resources before returning to Santa Clara University to teach history and to serve as a dorm chaplain. Father Conadera then studied at the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome to earn a bachelor's degree in sacred theology in 2017, and he was ordained a priest in 2018. Uh, now he works as a professor of history at St. Louis University. So uh, to kick off the Summer Theology on Tap series, I'm happy to present Father Sam Conadera of the Society of Jesus. As the introduction said, I'm a priest of the Society of Jesus, and I think the idea behind this particular talk was to find a Jesuit to talk about finding God in all things. And when I arrived here from St. Louis, I discovered that they asked one of my buddies, who's in the Society, to do the talk, and he wasn't able. And they asked another one of my buddies if he could do the talk, 
and he was also unable. So I'm like third string on the Finding God in All Things Jesuit feature here, all right? So you got to adjust your expectations accordingly. Now, Finding God in All Things. I'm a historian. I, it's pure vanity, but I have to say I also got my doctorate in history from UCLA. So I am sort of a legit instructor at St. Louis University, and I think like a historian. So when in the Society of Jesus, we use this expression all the time, finding God in all things. But my question is, where did it come from? It's actually not something that St. Ignatius himself said. It's not one of his catchphrases. It comes from one of his earliest biographers, a guy named Pedro de Ribanadera. Okay? And he was this kind of little rascal of a kid who hung out in Rome and got away with a whole bunch of stuff at 12 years old that no one else ever would have got away with Ignatius. And then Ignatius kind of brought him in. He entered the Society of Jesus. And eventually later, around 1572, he wrote the first biography of Ignatius's life. And Ribanadera says that Ignatius was able to find God in omnibus rebus. How many people do we have here who study Latin? All right, this is Notre Dame. I figured I'd get a few more hands. So, in omnibus rebus, you might translate, as we often do, in all things. But the Jesuit who taught me Latin, who's now at the Institute for Advanced Jesuit Studies in Boston, yes, there is actually such a thing, if you can believe it, he thinks that the more correct translation of in omnibus rebus would not be in all things, but in all circumstances. In all circumstances. So we have this expression, finding God in all things, that is sort of put out there in just about every Jesuit parish and educational institution across the country. And yet, it doesn't come from Ignatius, and we might say we have a disputed translation. Now, why is this important? By the way, who here is a product of Jesuit education? Okay, fewer than I thought, and my condolences, I was going to say to all of you, right? It's, I hope it hasn't scarred you for life as it has me. But in any case, in all circumstances, what is at stake in this idea of finding God in all things versus finding God in all circumstances? St. Ignatius did not believe that all activities and all desires were ordered towards God. He knew that there were some activities and some desires, no matter how much you might dress them up, that don't fit with finding God, that are not ordered towards, all, towards God. So to say that he was someone who found God in all circumstances is to acknowledge this fundamental point. St. Ignatius, like all saints, was a great lover of God who had the desire to seek and find God in all circumstances. So no matter what was going on in the world around him, whatever vicissitudes and distractions and sufferings and setbacks and even joys that he experienced, 
He sought and found God in all those circumstances. And that's what the saints are. They're people who find God because they love God, because their minds and hearts are set upon God, because their activities are set upon God, because their cares and concerns are set upon God. That's what distinguishes the saints. And when we use the expression finding God in all things, we should highlight the God part first, and then the things or circumstances. Fundamentally, finding God in all things is about finding God, seeking God, whatever else is going on. Now, there's a paradox in this. We can seek God, but it lies not in our power to actually find Him. When we find God, it's always because He has first taken that initiative. God seeks and finds us before we seek and find Him. And when we find God, it's because God wants to be found. This is a really important point. I'm going to come back to it later when we deal with some difficulties. Okay? So finding God in all circumstances or in all things is about seeking and finding the one who was already seeking and finding us. That's always the initiative of God's grace. And that's absolutely essential. Now, one might pose the question, I'm assuming since you all are here tonight that God matters to you at least a little bit. I don't imagine you would spend this gorgeous, what is this, Tuesday evening, sitting on the lawn, purchasing tacos, and listening to a man in black talk, unless you were already somewhat invested in God and God were somewhat important to you. And that's important to keep in mind here. God has to be important to you. If you're going to seek and find God, He has to matter to you. And it doesn't mean that you have to be someone else. It doesn't mean that you have to be smart or attractive or wealthy or important in any worldly estimation. You don't have to go live somewhere else among other people doing other things. God just has to be important to you. You have to be prepared to make room in your lives for God and for the seeking and finding of God. You just have to be someone who wants to find God, to know, to love, and to serve Him. And I assure you that every life of the saints begins in this way. Some saints were important people and some were of no consequence. But they didn't become saints except through this. They were prepared to seek and to find God and to become great lovers of God. Have I said the word God enough times to make that like a theme of this talk? I hope so. If I've failed, I will continue to do it, but the smiles and laughter on your face suggest yes. God is the theme of this. Finding God, seeking God, knowing, loving, and serving God. That's what that expression has to be focused on. And that's what our lives as Christians have to be focused on. Now, 
I said you don't have to be someone important or smart or wealthy or attractive or any of those things. Some of you may be smart, wealthy, important, or attractive. Others of you may be lowly members of the Society of Jesus. But in either case, it's not, no, no, sorry. It's not about any of that stuff. But we do have to know what are the basic things. And I want to emphasize basic things. I do not assume that everybody has their life together, right? If you do not have your life together, that's okay. In fact, that's a good reason to be here, to reappropriate and to focus on what are the basic things. So where do we begin with the basic things? What's the first thing that Jesus says when he begins his public ministry? It's in Matthew and in Mark. I'm not going to make anybody run around with a microphone, but does someone actually know what he says? And the ringer here does not get to answer the question. Somebody else. What's, what's the first thing that Jesus says when he, in Matthew and Mark when he goes out to exercise his public ministry? So after the temptation in the desert, what's the first thing he says? Yes, the foreigner here. Go ahead. Oh, snap. He's got both versions, the Matthean and the Markan versions. Yes. All right. All right. I should have known better than to put that question to this crowd. Exactly. The answer is repent and believe the gospel. That's the first thing that Jesus says when he goes out to preach after being tempted in the desert. Repent and, the belief, and believe the gospel. This is the first message of Jesus' public life. If you want your lives to be right with God, you have to first acknowledge the ways that they are not. And it's hard to start with this, right? We want to start with something fun and nice. But repenting is neither fun nor nice, correct? Even after many long years of going to confession on a very regular basis, confession and repenting is not fun or nice. But it's, a, right? Can, or no, maybe actually in this crowd there might be some people who enjoy confession. Are there any such people here? Oh dear, there's always one, right? Okay, now, you love the effects of confession, right? But is it actually fun to go there and tell your sins to somebody else? Okay, good. It's not fun, it's not nice, right? But it's so important. Because if we wish our lives to be right with God, if we wish to be able to know and to, see, to find and to seek God, to seek and to find God, to know, love, and serve Him, we have to do what we can to put our lives right with Him. And that means acknowledging the ways in which we've not done that. So if you're already a baptized Catholic, you're in great position here. You can just go knocking. Um, what is it, after 9, 8 a.m. Mass, they got confessions here at Little Flower, is that right? And then 4 to 5 on Saturday afternoon, right? Putting a little plug in there. Because sometimes we have to go and make a count of our lives before God. Now that should be preceded, actually going to confession, should be preceded by some examination of our consciences. What have I done or failed to do in recent times? And I, we promised... No talking about COVID, but I'll just say this without referencing it directly. 
the last four months or so have taught me personally and people I know, friends of mine, a lot about who we are and who we are not and how you pull out the things that make your life pleasant, make your life tolerable, and take those things away, you may see like, oh wow, there was a huge drop off there in the way that I live my prayer life or the way that I keep the commandments or so on and so forth. Okay, if that's been your experience the last four months, any of you, okay, this should not come as a huge shock. When the things that help prop our lives up are taken away, it's likely that we will kind of fall off. So, repenting, and for the, in the case of baptized Catholics, returning to the sacrament of confession, that's enormously important. You're no longer on shutdown here. So that's, those opportunities are going to be more present than they were a few months ago. So, repent and believe the gospel. Acknowledge the ways that our lives have not been in conformity with, with God and what he wants of us, and seek the grace of, of sacramental confession. So Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel. What about this? So we got the repent part, the acknowledging our sins before God and seeking the grace from sacramental confession. What about believing the gospel? What's that all about? To what virtue might believing the gospel conform? I don't want to ask any of these people over here because they know their stuff already. Let's move over towards the center. Young woman with the dog. Oh gosh, yes. Believing the gospel. What, would, what, what virtue does that summon to mind? I'll give you a hint. It's a theological virtue. Yeah, you might be on the right track there. But somebody, you got to phone a friend now. So, oh, young man over there, yes. Faith, yes. What is the virtue of faith? What's that about? You again. Pass. Pass, all right. Someone else wants to jump in, though. Does anyone else know, what the, any, know anything about the virtue of faith? What's that about? Say that again. Yes, that's correct. I actually recently heard a sermon where the priest explicitly denied that that was, that what was faith was. But you got the answer correct. The virtue of faith is the virtue by which we believe all that God has revealed about himself and about us through Christ and in the church, right? But why is this virtue so important? Well, if you want to find God, you've got to listen to the things that he is telling you. And he's told us a whole lot of stuff about himself, about the world, and about us. In fact, God, in sending the patriarchs and the prophets and Jesus and in establishing the church, has revealed to us the secrets of his own divine heart. Not just the stuff that we could know by reason, but the things that we could know about him, about the world, and about ourselves that only he could tell us. And so if we want to seek and to find God and to know, love, and serve him, we have to receive with gratitude and joy and love the things that he has told us 
about himself. Now, where might you find some of these things? Where do we find the things that God has revealed about himself? The Gospels, yes, and why? Right, because God came down here and walked around as a man and said and did things, right? And there were people writing it down, not right then, but later. He said, I came into your midst. I didn't just stay in heaven. I came into your midst and told you about myself. And those teachings passed on to the apostles and their successors have been conserved in the church and maintained all this time. So repent and believe the gospel. This is kind of the first thing, the first basic that we have to have in place in order to be able to find God as Ignatius did in all things or in all circumstances. Any questions here? Okay, for some of you this is basic. For guy here who knew both scripture references, it's probably too basic. I'm going to see if I can throw a curveball at y'all a little bit later on. But we have other basics to keep in mind. What are some other basics of the Christian life? We talked about repenting and believing the gospel. But what's another activity that we have to engage in that's just basic? And I will give you a hint. It happens right over there. Worship. Who said that? You're the person who likes to go to confession again, right? Okay. We got to get somebody else talking in here, though, because, I mean, seriously, though? Okay, no, that's all right. I shouldn't, shouldn't go after you about it. Why is worship important? Why does that matter? Why is that a basic? Yes, sir. I, got, I should not have come to Notre Dame to give this talk. That was a mistake on my part. I, I mean, he's quoting the preface at me, right? Can you give it to me in Latin? Oh, okay. All right. Well, we still got him on something. Right. Because if you look at salvation history, if you look at the whole history of mankind in relationship to God, the thing that's always happening is worship. There's always worship happening in a determinate way, in a determinate place, from Genesis onward, right? Now, we're going to come back to Genesis in a moment. Well, no, we'll come back to Adam and Eve garden stuff in a moment. But what do the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all those guys, do at key moments in the book of Genesis? When something wild goes down, when they wrestle an angel or they meet God or something like that, what do they very often do? They stop and worship. In fact, what do they do? They dig up, they dig up some dirt and pile it up, and now we got an altar, and they offer worship to God, right? What does Melchizedek do? Anybody remember Melchizedek? He's the high priest, that's right. And he comes out and offers what? Okay, we'll come back to that. And then what happens, why does Moses want the people to be released from Egypt? It's not for the promised land, I'll give you a hint. What's the primary reason that he says to Pharaoh, let my people go? Yeah, he says, so that we may go out and worship to the Lord. And then worship takes place on Mount Sinai, and we get the establishment of the Levitical priesthood. And if you read those books, and let's face it, no 
most people don't want to, except perhaps you. You don't want to go through the book of Leviticus. And why not? It's long and it's boring. That is correct. It is. So why did God go to the trouble of inspiring the sacred writers to put all that stuff down? Minute, detailed regulations about worship. Why would he do that? No, nobody? Okay, but why is it important? Because he's saying, I want you to worship me in this particular way and in no other. Yeah, it sets them apart. Because if you go off and are allowed to worship willy-nilly as you see fit, you will screw it up. And the whole rest of the account of Scripture, you see especially in the books of Kings and the books of Chronicles, is precisely that. They're going to go off and worship somebody and something else in some other way. So God seems to think, astonishingly, that worship is really important. Now let's kick it back to Genesis. Do you know what's one of the major differences between Genesis and the other creation or origin narratives of the ancient Near East? You do, sir. Yes. In what? No, not so much creation, but what's... There's one thing that the other ancient Near Eastern narratives have, and that's at the end, there's a temple. There's a temple built to one of the gods. Do we have such a thing in Genesis 1 and 2? No, you're not, I'm not allowing you to say nothing. Is there a temple built to God in Genesis 1 and 2? No, there's not. Why not? Okay, now you jump in. Why is there no temple? Yeah, why not? Right, God doesn't need to be worshipped with idols. That's correct. But there's another thing. What, uh, an idol, yes. That's true, they can. And the reason they can do that is because a temple always has an idol or an image in it, right? But what does Genesis tell us is the image of God in creation? Oh, okay, right? Man is made to worship. Now, that doesn't mean he always does it. And it certainly doesn't mean he does it right. But man is made to worship. And so every Sunday, when you haul yourself, and in some case your children, out in the morning to come over here or wherever else you worship, that is why. Because mankind was made to worship. He is the axis in creation that connects the spiritual and the material worlds. Cows do not worship. Dogs do not worship. Birds do not worship. Angels worship, but do they have bodies to do it? No. Do they go to a temple? No. Man alone, and this is why man exists in a certain sense, is to, has the capacity in his body to worship God and to be that axis in creation. That's why this is so important. And we no longer follow the laws of the Levitical books, and we no longer worship in the tent or in the temple in Jerusalem, right? Does worship any longer take place on the temple mount in Jerusalem? It does not. Why not? 
Not you again. Yeah, uh, somebody, somebody who's, I, as a teacher, I always look at the person who's trying to avoid eye contact with me, and then I call on that person. Yes. You are that person, yes. I know, but you were faking, I could tell. Why? I even forgot my question. Why, why does worship not take place on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem anymore? Because it got knocked down, right? The Romans came and destroyed the temple. And so when Jesus talks about the day will come when you no longer worship in Jerusalem nor on this hill, but you will worship the Father in spirit and truth, his prophecy is of the Christian worship that now takes place in any space around the world that is consecrated to him and where that bread and wine offered by Melchizedek of old becomes the body and blood of Christ through the church's ritual forms. Right? Okay, you're thinking like, you took a damn long time to explain a very basic point. But it's really an important point. We must come and worship God in the place where the holy sacrifice of the Mass that exists to replace all the other sacrifices of both Jews and pagans. In everywhere and every place throughout the history of the world, you see, you see sacrifice in every time and place across the face of the earth. The sacrifice of the Eucharist in which the holy victim... Christ himself is offered by the priest who acts in the person of Christ to the Father. The only worthy victim that was ever offered continues until he returns at the end of time. When your toddler is screaming and crying and pooping 20 minutes before Mass starts, right? That's got to be a really difficult time to remember the importance of this. Is that right? Who's got toddlers who do those things? Uh, no, dogs do not worship, nor are they prepared to worship. But I suppose... A... Okay, all right. I have neither children nor dogs, so I can't speak to this from personal experience. But it's so important as you continue on in your Christian life to come here or wherever the Eucharist is offered and unite your own hearts and souls and bodies to that offering of the holy sacrifice of the Mass that takes place on all the Christian altars throughout the world. That was, I said I wasn't going to talk about COVID, so in this unidentified period, the last four months, the great horror, the great evil, was that that offering of the Holy Eucharist was not taking place publicly to give publicly honor and worship to God. That was a grave thing that the faithful were denied that opportunity. I'm very sorry that that was so. And I know many of you also suffered from it. Okay. Anything else on worship as a basic? We had repent and believe the gospel. We've got worship as a basic. What else might we add to that? It's another basic thing of the Christian life. Yes. We're going to leave evangelization out of it for just the moment, but you're right, because we hadn't gotten prepared for evangelization yet. But somebody else, was that you, sir? I did not, but now I am. Prayer. 
prayer. Now, the Mass is a prayer. It's part of the church's public prayer. But there has to be, more, there has to be something else. Why does there have to be prayer? It's the principal way that we seek and hopefully find God, right? Who here is married? Who here still lives with their parents? Anybody? Okay. If you came home at the end of a day to your spouse or to your parents and sort of barely gave them a nod as you went upstairs to your room and did not emerge to speak or interact with them for the rest of the night, and you did this consecutively every night for the next several weeks, what do you suppose would be the reaction of your spouse or parents to that? Something's not right here, right? They might pull you aside on the way up the stairs. Oh, come back. What's up? What is going on right now? Because this isn't the way that you treat the people you love, right? Likewise with God. Now, God does not usually, except indirectly, grab you and pull you in like that. So he can be easier to miss. But the fact remains is that if you don't spend time listening to and speaking with the person who loves you and whom you are supposed to love in return, that relationship is going to suffer. And you can, we can see this very clearly and easily in our lives with our spouses or our parents or our children or whoever that may be. Maybe perhaps less readily with God because he tends to let us do that for a time, right? He doesn't grab you, pull you in, and say, what's up? But he may do that in indirect ways. What are some of the indirect ways that God may give you a little reminder he's present that we haven't talked in a while? Has anyone experienced that before? Death? Well, that's a pretty emphatic way of doing it. Can you specify what you mean by death? Who said that? Oh, that was you. Sorry. All right, I thought it was that man. How is death, how is death a way that God pulls you back in? Existential reality. Yes, quite so. Are you studying philosophy right now? No. Oh, okay, you're done with that. That's right. Pray, yeah, thank God philosophy's over. We've all said that. So the idea here is that there has to be time in prayer. There has to be some time given over to God in addition to what we do going to worship him because otherwise we will not hear and speak to the one who loves us and whom we should love in return. Now, what are some basic ways that we can pray? What are some basic, again, we want to stick with basics. What are basic ways that you can engage in prayer? Say again. In song, so give me an example. Okay, so praise and worship music, yes. Sign of the cross, you make the sign of the cross, and then is that over? Okay, well, we'll not, we'll not, we'll not take ecumenical pot shots tonight at the Orthodox, but we make the sign of the cross as a way of doing what? Beginning our prayer, right? So if it ends there, I'm going to take a step back to that and see why we're making that sign. Conversation with God. So how does that go? 
You don't have to give me the content. I mean, just how do you do that? Yes. In fact, the word I would use even more for conversation with God is silence. To find silence in your lives, to find silence in our lives that we set apart and spend with God. It doesn't make us any money. It doesn't get us any work done. It doesn't provide any discernible advantage in this life that you can immediately identify and quantify. It's just time set apart with God. And you can spend that in silence. You can spend it in conversation, listening and speaking. You can do the rosary. You can pray the divine office. But something, if we wish to find God in all things and in all circumstances, there has to be some prayer. And I would say as a practical piece of advice, start small, start basic. If you don't do any daily prayer, three minutes, five minutes, just a little bit each day that it'd be something, some silence, some prayer offered to God, but it'd be consistent. And if you look back six months later, your interior life will be different you will realize there will be new space carved out in your soul that you can inhabit and dwell in with God. And that's really important that we do that. So repent and believe the gospel, worship, prayer, anything else? The two of you there who are smiling on the blanket or the towel or something, what would you like to add to our basics here? You wish to laugh instead. Okay, that's fine. The, no, what, what else do we have to add for basics? That's okay. We're going to jump ahead to some. Yes. The Eucharist, well, we got that with worship a little bit. But we got all this prayer. We got all this repenting and believing and worship and all that. What do we want? What do we have to do with that? Yeah, we have to behave, right? We have to behave. We have to walk in the ways of righteousness. Now, that's not going to come easily, especially if you are a member of the Society of Jesus, because that's just kind of set up to inculcate vices. But, no, is that too, too much? Okay. Well, if y'all know some of the Jesuits at Notre Dame, they're good guys. But some of us struggle not to be real jerks in life, right? And we need the grace that God provides us, the instruction of the commandments and the grace that comes with doing these things, with praying, with worshiping, with repenting of our sins and confessing them and believing in God. That's pretty basic, right? But it's probably the hardest part because a lot of us will have consistent problems and things, right? And maybe in these last four months, you've seen some of those problems reassert themselves in ways that you thought you were done with, right? Various online activities, shopping and otherwise, right? Or use of, what, self-medication, we'll use that euphemism for it, right, to deal with the stress. Or snapping at people and getting angry with your children, your spouse, your parents, or your coworkers that you only interact with online now, right? Anybody seen those things reassert themselves in the last few months? Or was I the only one? Okay. So this is an opportunity then at this juncture to take stock 
of what our lives look like, how when some of those supports were taken out, what are some of the problems we fall back into. And ask God to help us to keep the commandments and keep the Beatitudes. All right, I'm running short on time. I have just one question, though. This is my curveball. And for all you, you and the other people who were answering questions much more articulately than I expected, here's a question. What do you do when you're really seeking God? I mean, you're really trying to find God, and it seems that he is not there. Has anyone ever had this experience? First of all, let's see a show of hands. Yes, a few of you have encountered this before. Is this a source of frustration? Often it is. How do we explain that? What's going on there, sir? The dark night of the soul. Well, yeah, if you're John of the Cross or, or some relatively advanced mystic, sure. It's probably dark night of the soul. Now, other people, even Jesuits, may experience that kind of thing at a little bit lower down the mystical ladder, right? But you, you jumped up there, so props to you. What's going on there when we are really seeking God and we don't seem to find him and he seems not to be present? Yes. A period of desolation. You tell me what desolation is? Feeling far away from God. Right. The feel-good part with God is not there. And it seems that you're inclined to dark thoughts, low thoughts, thoughts of abandonment, thoughts of despair, and so forth, right? Well, what do you do in that kind of a situation? What's going on there? Yes, sir. Detach yourself from the world. How do you intend to do that? Sacrifices, okay. What is it that you do in life? I'm just curious. No, I, I'm always really curious, like, the people I meet at things like this. Are you a student? An undergrad student. Let's talk after this is over. In any case, okay, so that's one thing you might do. Let's flesh that out, though. What, how do you deal with... The fact that you really are seeking God, like you really want to find him, and that's not happening. Why would you maybe do as he said and offer sacrifices? What's going on there? Say that again. Okay, now, perhaps a relationship has been broken, and you're trying to restore it. What if, though, that relationship hasn't been broken? What if you're keeping all the commandments and doing all the basic things, all the right stuff? I still believe all that God has told me. She said loss of faith. Maybe that's what's going on. But let's say it's not. I'm trying to throw a curve at y'all. Aha, wisdom here. Yes, that's right. What she said was sometimes God is showing you something, his presence, but you don't recognize it for what it is, Right? Did I accurately? Okay, good. This is true. And this is the hard part. I always, no, I try to end on a positive note, but I often don't. So just, but it'll sort of turn out to be positive, but it'll be hard. So just bear with me for a moment. 
One of the great temptations, and we see this all throughout the life of Israel, and we see it in the life of the apostles, and we see it in the life of the church, and if we're paying attention, we'll see it in our own lives, is that we want God to behave in the way that we want him to do. Right? We want God to give us the things that we want. Now, sometimes the things that we want are good. So you could have a perfectly devout, upright person who's doing all the basic things and more to live the Christian life, to seek and to find God. And yet, he runs into a wall and deals with frustration in that. And sometimes that's because what he wants to do really at the end of the day, whether he sees it or not, is to bend God to what he wants. Will God be bent to what you want? No. That's the... It's great worshiping the one true God, but it has this downside to it. The one true God, unlike the idols, will not be bent to what we want. They'll say, nope, we're going to flip that around and teach you, help you learn and understand to love, to know, love, and serve me. And sometimes the frustrations that we find in seeking and not finding God are related to this. God wishes to give you something, wishes to teach you something, wishes to give you some gift, but it may not be the thing that you're seeking, and in fact, you might not want it at all once you realize what it is. This is a difficult thing. And those of you who have children can probably see this, right? Becoming a parent is one of the best ways to understand this principle. Because you want your children to do things and to behave in certain ways that will be good for them. Do the children immediately recognize that this is the case? No, they do not. Sometimes they need time and continual instruction to get that. And as children are to us, so are we to God. Sometimes the frustrations or difficulties we run into, sometimes the seeking and not finding God is related to this. Without realizing it, we wish to make him do what we want. And he said, no, 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 I'm teaching you to do what I want because that's how this relationship, relationship of love is supposed to work. And that's what made Ignatius, about whom it was said that he found God in all things or in all circumstances, that's what made him a great saint that he learned through struggles and difficulty and much prayer and fasting and worship. I left out the fasting part, sorry. Ah, another talk. <laughs> he learned through all those things to know, love, and serve God and to seek what God wanted and to receive what God had to offer him and ask him to do with great joy and love. Thank you, Father. Uh, that was no third string talk. <laughs> First string for sure. <laughs> So the first question was about where we encounter God or where we find God. Um, I guess my question is, how can we be sure that it's God that we're really finding and not just our own feelings or our own ideas or whatever? Where to start with an easy one? Um, so the first thing I'd say is that... Um, both the things that are public and revealed and the things that are private are crucial to this piece, right? So if God is, if, if what you're hearing, what you're finding in your own prayer or thinking is telling you to go against the public faith of the church or to kill a whole bunch of people, like, good sign that that's not of God, right? 
Okay, so part of this is sort of a process of elimination. Like there's a lot of things you can do to say, this is not, this is not right. The second thing I would say is that um, this usually won't work as a one-off. Like anything that you do well comes about largely through practice and habituation, right? So prayer is something you got to stick with. And with time, you can learn to uh, recognize with a fair degree of certainty what is coming from God and what is not. So I'll give you just a couple examples of this because these are largely matters of prudence that do require some practice and some immersion in prayer. But um, if the things that you are hearing or thinking about or praying about are moving you away from the Christian life, particularly faith, hope, and charity. If as a result of what you're doing, you're believing in God less, hoping less for heaven, and loving God and neighbor less, that's a pretty good sign that it's taking you in the wrong direction. And then the contrary is also true. If what's coming through in your prayer and in your conversation with God and all that sort of thing is moving you in the opposite direction and is accompanied by peace and joy and good behavior and all that kind of stuff according to what we know from revelation, divine and natural law and so forth, that's a sign you're moving in the right direction. So both, if you will, the objective and the subjective points here are important. The other thing I'd say is that keep in mind that God wants to be known, right? There are times when we feel like God is hidden to a certain degree, but God wants to be known and loved and served. And so to the people who seek him and to dispose themselves to receive what he has to offer and to receive the sacraments of the church and all that kind of stuff, 99 times out of 100 or more, you're going to see the f good fruits coming out of those lives, right? Now, I'm going to just leave this because uh, I don't want to get into too much of the particulars, but if someone has a particular difficulty or struggle, that's something you probably want to take to a confessor or a spiritual director if it's kind of a, a fine, detailed thing. The lives of the mystics. Where was our mystics guy? Where did he go? John of the Cross? He's hiding his face now. Those kind of guys deal with like really subtle, high-level stuff, right? And sometimes that's what you're dealing with. Most of the time you won't be dealing with that kind of stuff, unless you are, in which case, seek out someone who can give you good one-on-one -on -one kind of counsel. I don't know if that was a satisfactory answer, but that's what I got. Uh, on a lighter note, uh, I just wanted to know who your favorite saint was and why. Gosh, um, my favorite saint, that's a hard one. I think the person, the one whose personality most matches my own is probably Saint Jerome. And I find it a great consolation that he is a saint because nobody liked that guy and no one should have, right? He was just kind of asshole. But he also gave us the Vulgate and a whole lot of good biblical commentary. I'd say I also like uh, Saint Philip Neri. He's kind of the exact opposite, right? Like he was a bit of a joker and did all sorts of weird stuff to throw people off. Don't mess with that guy, though. One of my favorite stories about him, a priest who had him as a spiritual director, went to him and was bragging about this great homily he preached. And Philip Neri says, great, you're going to give it every day for the next month. 
I bet that priest never bragged about his homilies ever again. So, like, anytime you're dealing with a saint, like, you're going to get some, maybe some levity except with Jerome, and then you're going to get serious business. So I like those two guys quite a bit. So, uh, in all of your studies of history, where have you found, like, an event in history or a time period where you kind of saw God that maybe wasn't directly biblical? Yeah, so the question was, where do I find, you know, the working of God in, in my studies of history? <sighs> um, the event that jumped to my mind was Lepanto, but I probably shouldn't say that since this is being recorded. Uh, so I'll go with something, like, more mundane, maybe. Um, I think any, if you look at something like the Counter-Reformation, 16th and 17th century, You'll see a lot of people, again, who are not important people, who are doing a lot to renew the faith and devotion to God and receiving the sacraments in all these cities all over Italy. And so, like, you can name the big saints, but I kind of like getting into some of the nooks and crannies of these things and seeing, like, people who you've never heard of and probably never will hear of who, living the faith in an ordinary way, helped. They were that leaven that... that uh, gave uh, rise to the whole loaf. Um, so I didn't say Lepanto. You didn't hear that. So what made you choose the Jesuits versus just being a diocesan priest or any other, any other order of priesthood? Do you see the face I'm making? It looks like I stuck it in a diaper, right? I was afraid that someone would ask me that question. Um, and I only really have time to give you the canned version of it. Um, I wanted to be a priest from the age of 16, and then I went off to college, and then decided not to do that after a couple of years, but I met the Jesuits there, so it's kind of a back and forth thing for the next five or six years, and then I finally settled on it, broke up with my girlfriend, and uh, I wanted to do, to do anything but enter the Society of Jesus for reasons I won't go into, but none of those things were, it was, just wasn't clicking. And so I called up this Jesuit buddy of mine from the days of yore, and he said to me, I was telling him what I was thinking about and what I was going to do, and he said, well, I think the society is the only thing that makes sense for you. And I just kind of laughed at him because he was bo it was both ridiculous and completely right. So, I mean, I guess the short version I would say is, remember when I was talking about that thing at the end about you trying to get God to do what you want, and then he flips it back around on you and says, no, like, we're going to do this instead. It's kind of like that. That's not like a huge sell for the Society of Jesus, so if you want me to throw in something else, I guess I'd say, um, can I take a shot? At Are there any Dominicans here? No? Okay, so I love Dominicans. I really do. Some of my best friends are Dominicans. That's actually not true, but it never is when someone says that. But I would say that, uh, you know, I'm pretty much a Thomist, and I love what those guys do. But the Dominican saint is Thomas, right? Am I wrong? Y'all know it, right? Okay. Where, you know, in the society, we got a whole bunch of different, if you will, models of sanctity, and so I figure eventually I'll hit on one of them that actually works, right? Um, but no, I guess I was attracted to the, 
the spiritual exercises and the kind of the great swashbuckling history of the Society of Jesus. It isn't quite as swashbuckling now, but that's okay. You know, I was born in a less than swashbuckling time. So um, I haven't answered your question, but I've revealed all sorts of things about myself that I didn't intend to. So next question. Let's get on to the next one. Oh, someone way in the back. Um, so my question sort of centers around, like, we've all been doing a lot more living on either a Google Meets or Zoom. So what's your advice for parishioners and pastors on how to make sure that people don't become so reliant on watching Mass from their living rooms instead of actually going to the church and not falling into a habit of it? It's just so convenient for me to sit on my couch and open my laptop and, and yeah. just watch Mass. Um, so I think the best thing to say is, do what you can do in your circumstances. So there are some places where you can get back to Mass and it's not an enormous health risk to you and your loved ones. And I'd say in those circumstances, even though it's not, I think, an, is, it an ob, is the obligation been renewed in any diocese? Yeah, I don't think so. So to the extent that you can, be physically present for worship, right? If you can't do that, I guess what I'd say is... Um, I'm not against masses online and streaming masses, but I think there are certain pitfalls with them that you seem to be, I think, alluding to. And I guess what I'd say is if mass on your tablet isn't working for you, it might be good to take up some other um, public prayer of the church. One of the things that I attempted without success to convince some of my friends and confreres was of the litany of the saints. Has anyone ever prayed the litany of the saints? Yes. That's really a wonderful public prayer of the church. And it's especially appropriate to these times because the litany of the saints is one, calling upon that great cloud of witnesses that we have in heaven who've gone before us. That's so important. And the second is asking God and them to spare us right? That kind of supplication is really important uh, always, but especially now in the life of the church. And so I'd say um, what you might find is that this presents an opportunity to the extent that you're um, unable to go to Mass to um, enter into domestic prayer, to make your homes more and more places of prayer. And again, start small with that. You know, you're not going to want to do an hour of prayer as a family to start off. You're going to want to do five or ten minutes or the rosary or the litany or something like that. That would be my suggestion because um, while public worship is indispensable, and as I said, its loss has been the great tragedy of recent months, you know, the, the, the faith is really lived out even more, you know, in the parish certainly, but also in the home. And that's where you and your children are going to work out your salvation more than anywhere else. Once again, thank you, Father Sam. Thank you very much for your time.